0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Family Business Leadership Podcast with Robin Lechinger. Every day, Robin leads and guides family businesses as a lawyer and board member. This series, brought to you by SMB Interim Management and Yates Advisors, focuses on major challenges facing today's family-owned businesses. Each podcast will showcase frontline leaders exploring their personal experiences and best practice solutions. If you're a family leader, board member, shareholder, or professional advisor, you will welcome proven approaches to the challenges of governance, succession, leadership, strategy, multi-generation ownership, and more. And now let's hear from Robin as she introduces us to today's guest.
1: Today, we are talking with James Bly. For 25-plus years, James has been advising family businesses, and he's done that by, among other things, studying the world's megatrends and their impact on family businesses with the goal of helping multi generational families plan for their futures. Welcome, James. It's an honor to have you as my guest.
2: Thank you, Robin. Nice to be with you.
1: So before we dig into the subject of strategy, what it means, how to develop one, what's the megatrend that I know you've spent, or mega trends that you've spent many years of your career studying, and how those trends have been for uh, impacting family businesses. I want to start with your journey and how you've become the preeminent expert, at least one of them, in the field of multi-generational family businesses.
2: Yeah, so Robin, as I think you know, I'm a, myself a fourth-generation member of a business-owning family. My uh, great-grandfather on my mother's side was in the coal business in western Pennsylvania in the late 19th century, and he and his uh, sons, or he brought his sons into the business with him um, as the 20th century unfolded. Uh, They continued in coal, but also expanded into natural gas, although by the time it was moving to the third generation in the uh, mid-1960s, Uh, there were challenges within the family and within the business. And the operating company was merged into a company that eventually went public. And therefore, the uh, third generation retained interest in production and mineral interest. uh, In other words, the operating assets, but there was no longer a, a family management company or operating company. So as this has continued in the fourth generation, I have that perspective looking back but then from a personal career standpoint after starting um, with a, a finance uh, career i joined uh, some other gentlemen in the early 1980s to create a firm that was going to be targeted at advising larger multi-generational family businesses working with families that were interested in growing larger more valuable companies or holding companies uh, over an extended period of time and also transferring those businesses into the next generation of course whenever you're thinking about building a company for the long term uh, you need to give thought to the future outlook and so that is how um, we eventually developed a focus on megatrends and kind of tied that into the uh, practice uh, methodology
1: all right, and we are certainly going to get into that, uh, the mega trend and the future back strategic planning. But before we get there, uh, and you, given your experience with family businesses, both by being in one and then consulting and uh, advising many, many over the course of your career, have probably heard people say that during the first generation and maybe early in the second, they're just so busy making sure that the business survives that they don't have time for strategy. In your words, why does a family business need a strategy?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, when a business is started in early and young, uh, survival is key. And, and at times, because you're thin on resources, there is not a tremendous amount of time about thinking too far into the future because you've got to meet the payroll or, you know, some, some objective for the next month. But as, as companies grow, and especially as uh, they they become uh, upper middle market, uh, you know, larger scale businesses, especially to the extent that the controlling owners are interested in holding the companies long term, you know, for a decade or two or maybe indefinitely into the future. Strategy is very important. And how I think about it is that it, it could also be described as a vision. You know, it's intended to address the question of where do we go from here? And it's definitionally forward-looking. It's not where we've been, but it's where we're going. And the reason I think that a larger family business needs a strategic plan is, is because it enables the executive team and the board and the owners to really understand the plan future direction of the business.
1: And does it ensure alignment amongst all those different stakeholders to have this plan
2: well, I mean, the, the old adage is uh, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And and so what the strategy does is it sort of helps focus future direction uh, so that you can uh, kind of align understanding with regard to that.
1: So what are the must-haves or key components of a strategic plan?
2: Well, there, there's um, four at least. Uh, the one is that I think it's important to have a truly accurate understanding of um, the competitive capabilities, and the development positioning of a given business. Secondly, you certainly need to have an understanding of evolving customer needs or expectations and competitor responses. Third um, must-have would be the outlook for the industry in which the customers operate and the related trends in such industries that might represent uh, risks or opportunities Final, uh, I think a key component of the strategy would be to to have a reasonably good handle on the relevant macro factors, such as economic outlook, monetary policy, capital market trends that would affect participants operating in the industry segment or in the environment.
1: In addressing each one of these four key or must-have components and because we're here talking about strategic planning for family businesses, do you believe it's necessary to start with a family vision and then build those build on top of that?
2: Well, different people have different approaches, but my sense is that some families do that; they start with the family vision. But I believe that oftentimes that's um, the equivalent of putting the cart before the horse, because unless the business strategy is already spot on. And, and understood by the shareholders, uh, which is often not the case, uh, family vision can be distorted, as in most cases, the business or businesses that they have a collective ownership of are the, it's the goose that lays the golden eggs.
1: So when you say distorted, is it because they have a st- distorted vision of that goose? Distorted vision of what they understand are... The golden eggs that maybe are lumps of coal. Yeah,
2: you know, they 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 say that a well performing business is the equivalent of a goose that lays the golden eggs, and one that isn't is the equivalent of an alligator that eats its young. Uh, <laughs> and and
1: uh, I have not yeah. heard that metaphor, but I like it.
2: <laughs> well, you know, and often often you know a critical a critical component of the of a family's vision statement, uh, since the vision statements are usually tied to the collective interests of the families, often relating to certain expectations or assumptions with regard to at least the major assets in which the family members own a shared interest, you know, the, uh, which, which would be the business in the case that we're speaking about here. Uh, but I've seen many uh, vision statements that were developed by uh, family members, sometimes with the help of their uh, advisors with certain assumptions about the role of the business in supporting the vision, uh, for example, we, we will diversify our shared wealth by distributing uh, funds from the business that will be invested in a portfolio of alternative assets. Yes, we,
1: we've we've all seen that statement in family visions. Okay, so go ahead.
2: So, go ahead. So, which 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 assumes that the business would be able to fund the diversification strategy, and, and in a number of those situations. The businesses actually needed to retain funds, or in some cases, they needed access to even more funds in order to make the capital investments or acquisitions to remain competitive in the field that they were in. And when the family members kind of forced the businesses to uh, adhere to their vision uh, to start distributing funds without understanding really the relevant issues facing the company, oftentimes the businesses struggled or the management teams running them struggled or left or the businesses failed and or the family vision was never achieved. So starting with the vision before you really understand where the business is and where it's going, I, I think is the wrong approach. But again, many different approaches to these things.
1: Over what period should the strategic plan span? Are we talking three years, five years, 10 years,
2: it, it's a good question, and it's very subjective. It really depends upon, I think, the industry factors and dynamics at work. And and uh, certainly optimally, you'd want to pick a point in the future at which a given company would need to be better positioned than it is today. Now, in a rapidly consolidating industry environment, that might be three years. In, a, in an industry segment in which uh, business models are being disrupted, it Maybe even sooner in, in a declining industry segment. Possibly five years would be the right time frame, and, and in an already consolidated uh, or unconsolidated industry segment, possibly you know ten years would be a reasonable period of time. Um, you know, we do work with one client that has a one hundred year view uh, in one industry segment that is just getting started, but which is not really likely to start taking off for another fifty years. So the timeframe can vary. But in most instances, it would be somewhere between, say, um, three to 10 years, unless there's a lot of urgency associated with what is going on in the sake. So with this
1: 100-year view, that spans what I would call multi-generations. How do you think about that? And how do you make certain that you maintain alignment and engagement, especially when many of us won't even be here <laughs> in 50-plus years?
2: Well, in a it could very well be that, that the view is completely incorrect, right?
0: Sure. So you, that you, too.
2: <laughs> you, you, would get, you would get into um, uh, capital allocation decisions and, and uh, monitoring the uh, slow-moving events in that given situation, et cetera. But ob- obviously, that's a large holding company. And and so the, the perspective have they have for their other subsidiaries or operating groups would be much different than that. In terms of the uh, long-term transition, multi-generational transition, and it is interesting, a little known factor here in the United States is that among the upper middle market family-controlled businesses, uh, because you always hear the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves in three generations, and the Implication is that the first generation starts it, and by the third, they've run into the ground. But with the larger companies, $100 million to billions of size here in the United States, over 80% 80 of those are second through seventh generation companies. So there are a, a large number of families that have kind of figured this out. It really ties into the governance systems and having what we describe as parallel governance systems. The business side of governance sort of overseeing the management team and the forward-looking strategy for the company. But then there's the ownership side of governance, which is how do you develop the the next generation of inheritors uh, or advisors, board members, et cetera?
1: So if I'm hearing you correctly, in order to implement some type of of multi-generational strategy, and you talked about the two governance paths, you're saying that those families that have figured it out understand that there are actually two different governance structures going on, both of which need tending to nurturing and care. And that's actually what helps them succeed through the generations.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I've, I've studied this thoroughly, but involved in hundreds of situations where we've helped to implement transitions of that sort. But that, that is really how you manage things for the long term. And the, the one, one part of it is really the forward-looking strategic plan. But then the key to it is, how is that plan developed? How is it implemented? Who oversees it? And how do you really hand it off to the next generation? Because that can be next generation of executives, board members, trustees, beneficiaries, inheritors.
1: Well, wow, we could do a whole podcast on just that topic. Um, so let's pivot right now to who's involved in making the strategic plan.
2: Well, not, not to answer um, in a basis that might sound glib, but I think I think that... The starting point would be the first and foremost, it ought to be people who really know what they're doing. Um, The most successful companies that we work with typically have one or two models. The the first model would be to let the CEO and his or her executive team uh, develop the strategy and present the strategy to the board for approval. The other approach, uh, which we've seen more and more often during the last decade, and I think it is becoming The dominant way to do it is is for the multi-generational businesses to have a strategy committee of the board, which typically includes the CEO and the CFO, uh, sometimes other C-level executives, and then one or two members of the board uh, who are highly competent with the development and execution of strategies, and oftentimes um, one or two outsiders who become committee members but are really not directors.
1: How do you ensure alignment across all the stakeholders? Is this part of the parallel governance uh, ecosystems that we talked, that you mentioned previously, or is there some other way to ensure alignment?
2: If you take a parallel governance approach uh, and say that, that one aspect of that is business governance, I think of that as who's minding the store. And then the other part of it is owner governance. And that is how do you provide assurance to the people at work minding the store in the business? that you're not on shifting sands as a solid foundation for the future, and that there is going to be really a smooth handoff or transition from an older to a younger generation of, of owners. And that that is oftentimes referred to as developing patient capital.
1: So you talk about wanting to have the parallel governance structures. And what I heard from that as well is part of why you do that is that you assure those who are minding the store who might not actually be the owners, that those who are owning it want to keep owning it through the generations. Mm-hmm. That way they're, they're, they are aligned. I couldn't agree more that that's the way you do it, but things happen. And I'm just curious if you've ever had that experience where the owners thought that was what the plan was. They shared that plan with those minding the store, but things disrupted the plan and disrupted it in a very quick way let's say. It wasn't something that was over a period of time where everybody could see that the strategic plan was going to shift. I'm just asking, what do you
2: do in those situations and how do you recommend pivoting? So there'd be pivoting at the operating business level. In other words, let's say that, you know, you've developed what at a point in time uh, would appear to be a intelligent vision or strategy for the future. And they move ahead to Assure alignment throughout the enterprise and among the stakeholders as you're implementing the plan. And then something was missed as part of the strategic thinking, uh, which requires a, a a major shift of some sort. Now you, you've had black swan events; certainly, COVID was uh, one of those. Or you you've had other other in industries. You can also have pivots or disruption at the uh, shareholder level. In most instances. The disruption, at the shareholder level stems from not having a solid owner governance process in place where you really haven't built patient capital and where ownership agreements are misunderstood or not, not aligned. But you can have uh, also, uh, you know, families who receive an offer they can't refuse for the business, which can cause a shift or a pivot uh, as well. So there's a number of factors. not to be evasive here. But if you, if you have decent governance systems, you, you can typically address unplanned events that would come in to be disruptive at the ownership level or at the business level.
1: No, that wasn't evasive at all. That was actually very uh, useful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And that makes for a really good segue because you've obviously worked with hundreds of family businesses. Can you share a few stories or anecdotes about what successful strategic planning
2: looks like and what it does not look like? Well, I've I've been uh, fortunate to uh, have been involved uh, over the decades with many more families who got it right, as opposed to families who got it wrong. One company that I've been interacting with here recently, again, is one that I've actually worked with since 1989. And... Back in 1989, uh, they, the company had about $50 million in revenue and uh, that, that revenues growing to last year was over $5 billion. And, and it's also transitioned through three generations of uh, family control. So that that clearly has been a success story. And there's, there's a lot of detail that goes into that. That's a success. And, you know, we, we also had um, a number of years ago been... Um, introduced to a, uh, into a family where the control parties had elected an ineffective board. The board employed an ineffective management team. And, and then as the ownership and governance and leadership was dysfunctional in the situation, despite the fact that we had uh, come in to do some research and made some suggestions with regard to Uh, directions within an industry segment and consolidation that was occurring. The input was never really understood or digested or uh, acted upon. So we had moved on as a firm or a practice, but at that time, that business generated about $250 million in revenue. And there was an opportunity in that industry segment for a business like that to be growing, to be probably over $10 billion in in revenue. And, And in fact, another company which was better governed and better managed, uh, seized the opportunity that the other company ignored. And then the company that we had interacted with uh, had over time uh, failed after about 15 years and was ultimately liquidated.
1: Seems to me you're saying that while a key ingredient for a successful family business is a well-developed, well-thought-out strategic plan, without the other ingredients of effective governance, leadership and management, the business will
2: not thrive and worse will fail. Is that fair? I think it is fair because I mean, if, if, if you say that strategy is the vision uh, for the future of the business, the persons in charge of leading the company, meaning the executives, uh, and the persons in charge of overseeing the leadership of the company, the board must be capable of making sure that um, they have a reasonably clear view of the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. And, and, you know, I have found that you rarely meet a company that would claim that they have no strategy or that they don't go through some sort of business planning or strategic planning process. Offsites with the executives, or you know, right?
1: Whatever. Everybody says they do that. That's right.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and so so if if everybody's doing that, and yet if you then look at at uh, so many companies that fail or underperform each year, it really begs the question: Well, were they planning to fail? Was, <laughs> that, right. was that the vision that they had in the planning? And of course, that's never the case. The answer that would be, no, they weren't planning to fail, but they obviously did have the wrong vision or strategy, or they simply implemented poorly the strategy that they had.
1: And then goes to the whole issue of the effectiveness of the governance leadership and so forth. And then to me, that is what I call the inability of the primary stakeholders to hold up the mirror, because that would require looking at yourself as opposed to the business plan that perhaps a number of consultants and advisors helped you with. Right At this point, Let's take a break for our sponsors. And when we come back, we will hear James talk about the process to be deployed for creating a strategy.
0: This podcast is sponsored and produced by SMB Interim Management and Yate Advisors. SMB Interim Management works with privately owned businesses that request assistance to solve significant time-sensitive operational challenges. SMB's core business is the placement of an interim C-suite executive to assist in solving critical operational challenges or to shepherd an organization through an unexpected departure. Their executives are uniquely matched to the industry and challenge for each assignment. SMB has a proven group of over 700 senior executives that can be deployed on short notice to solve the client's issues and then exit. Contact SMB at SMBIM.com. That's SMBIM.com. Yate Advisors helps law firms build family business practices. Through team coaching and consulting, Yate helps lawyers create demand for their legal services by recognizing their unique needs of family businesses. Yate will help your firm understand family businesses and develop solutions to their most important challenges. Find us at YatesAdvisors.com. Y-A-T-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com.
1: All right, let's move on to process. So when we began our discussion, you identified key components of a strategic plan. And just to recap for the audience, There were four things, an understanding of the competitive capabilities of a given business, an understanding of customer needs and competitor responses, the outlook for the industries in which the customers operate, and then relevant macro factors, such as economic outlook, monetary policy, and capital market trends. And then we've also talked about who should be involved in the process, how long it should take. Now let's talk about the process itself for identifying these key components. And we're all familiar with the SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats that's used in the strategic planning process. That's what I would call the traditional model. But I know that you as the national practice leader for Ernst & Young's Family Enterprise Business Services Group, where there's a lot of talk about the concept of future-backed strategic planning, have this other concept that I'd like you to share with the audience.
2: So the future-backed strategy would be, as we discussed earlier, sort of deciding the appropriate future point that you would be uh, targeting, uh, given the dynamics in a given industry segment, and, and then working backwards to today, relative to uh, what, what the business would need to do, or what would need to be accomplished in order to be successfully positioned by that end date. So you do you have an element of SWAT because you do need to understand the relative position of the business. But what you're doing uh, with that future back strategy is taking the SWOT factors into account and then imagining the future and then then kind of working back to understand what you would need to do to get to that future point uh, successfully.
1: So is it fair to say that the primary difference between the traditional SWOT strategic planning and what we're calling the future back strategic planning is this concept of taking into account what the future looks like, these m- potential macro events, or ultimately what you're
2: going to talk about with us here, at megatrends? What does it mean? The, the traditional SWOT approach uh, used by many uh, family businesses often fails to consider the macros. You know, the, and the future back approach attempts to focus the process that is used to better account for tomorrow's world. One example is a a family that, at the latter part of the 19th century, uh, was the largest owner of blacksmith shops in one part of the country. And and just as the autos were introduced and the patriarch at that time uh, decided, uh, or within a couple of years, uh, that he needed within a couple of years to sell off and exit the blacksmith businesses What they did is they actually then redeployed the money they made uh, into uh, buying plots of land along highway arteries to get into the outdoor advertising business, which became a huge industry as autos took off. So that that would be a good example of a future back strategy.
1: Wow, all the way back then too. So you shared with me uh, before this podcast... uh, EY's white paper entitled, Are You Reframing Your Future or Is the Future Reframing You? Megatrends 2020 and Beyond. And I want to quote from that uh, paper because I found this fascinating. It says, future back strategy development process works best using megatrends as a key analytical tool to envision where you'll be in the future than working backward to craft strategies for today. And that's obviously what, James, you've just been sharing with us and talking about what it means. Mm-hmm. But before
2: we go any further, could you please explain what is a megatrend? Well, I think the best way to think about a megatrend is that it's a long-term macroeconomic force that permanently impacts businesses and consumers and the economy as it ripples through society. You know the easiest way that I've come to think about them, uh, it has the impact of a tsunami hitting. So if you're if you're on the wrong side of it, it's just you're no getting out of the way. Right. And the other the other way is that if you're if you're a surfer and you catch the right part of the wave, you can have a pretty good ride on it. So these megatrends and the megatrends usually uh, start out very subtly, and and then they, they rapidly accelerate and take off to a point where it's almost out of control. No time to stop them, or even to realign. If if you miss the early signs of the megatrends, so
1: I know the report talks about uh, eight megatrends from 2020 and beyond. Could you identify what those are? What those eight are?
2: I can, and um, and importantly, if you if you look uh, back at the last 20 years, there have been some other megatrends, and some of those other megatrends are still. Um, Moving through our economy, as an example, one of the major megatrends in the past um, 10 to 15 years, as an example, has been what we described as a population migration in the United States, moving from larger urban areas to smaller city regions. Now, that was one that was clearly, for example, accelerated by COVID, but, but it, was, it was already ongoing. Uh, in terms of the current megatrends... Uh, well, wait, let
1: me stop you there for a moment. Let's talk about that population migration. Maybe you could share just a quick anecdote about a family business or two that you've worked with in which this population migration trend impacted their business and that they were aware of it and therefore strategically planned for it, if you have one.
2: Well, I, d- I do. Um, you know, one, one family that we'd worked with you know, 15 or so years ago had been in the um, the retail automobile industry. And, and they were in the eastern part of Pennsylvania, and they were thinking about expanding. One of the uh, regions in which they were thinking about growing into was um, southeastern uh, New York State, up near Corning, New York, et cetera. And at that time, we were already tracking the, uh, the megatrends. And we had seen the impact of um, the early signs of this transition wave So we pointed out to them that if you took the estimates of population in Corning, New York, going from 2005 out through 2030, the the net increase in population in that region was going to be roughly zero. Whereas if you took another region at that time, which had roughly the same uh, scale of population, northern Colorado, The estimate there was that over the same number of years, the population in Northern Colorado would increase 500%. If you were going to expand in autos, um, would it make sense to expand in a zero growth market or would it make sense to expand in a high growth market? And and you get into a number of others because it even ties into, for example, um, where would you find tomorrow's workers? If you're in a business where there's um, consumer demand on a regional basis, well, where, where is there going to be growing consumer demand or declining consumer demand? So that that was the importance of that mega trend.
1: And did the family listen to you and then grow in the areas that you recommended and where these populations were going to grow?
2: They did. There were there were there were roughly um, five regions that were most attractive: uh, the Lehigh Valley region of Pennsylvania was one of those. The Delmarva Peninsula was another one of those, so not as far away as northern Colorado, uh, but but they did take uh, positions in those more attractive, um, demographically speaking, geographic uh, regions.
1: All right, so let's now go to the eight megatrends for 2020 and beyond. If you could share those with us and briefly describe them, that would be great.
2: First, what we're labeling is decarbonization. The Second, one of those would be uh, what we label as the techonomic Cold War. Third, the behavioral economy. Fourth would be synthetic media. Fifth would be the future of thinking. Sixth would be work and life unbounded. Seventh would be microbiomes, and eighth would be the synthetic biology. The decarbonization, uh, you know, uh, relates to global warning, warming. Warming, uh, new carbon removal solutions that are. Emerging in an effort to uh, decarbonize business models, uh, drive long-term value, demonstrate climate leadership, etc. And uh, you know the the, the economic cold war gets into things such as populism and trade disputes, company blacklists, and and kind of a technology arms race, cyber attacks, information warfare. You know rather than rather than try to go through all of these in detail. One of the things that you'd be welcome to do to your audience would be to send out our Megatrend report. If any of your audience would have specific questions about any of the Megatrends, you could just shoot me an email or let me know. Oh,
1: that sounds perfect. And thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So getting back to strategic planning. Why is it important to understand these megatrends when you are developing a strategic plan for your family business? And I know you've touched on it with the future back planning and so forth, but maybe you could get into some more details and some more specifics.
2: Well, um, again, when you're thinking about future back uh, planning or strategy in a particular industry segment, and as I mentioned earlier, that that megatrend can have a tsunami wave-like effect if. It's if you're on the wrong side of it because it's going to be wiping out everything in its path, or you're catching a, a kind of a great wave while surfing if you're on the right side of the the mega trend. The the reason it's important to factor the mega trends in not all eight of those mega trends will impact all industry segments. The key to it is to understand the mega trends and then and then try to um, understand. Which of those mega trends are most likely to have an impact on your company because of the impacts that they'll have on your ultimate end customers or your suppliers, uh, et cetera, or your business model or way of doing business?
1: So that's the thing here. It's is it even possible for a family business to identify those mega trends? Is it just simply focusing on, like you said, your customers, your your vendors? How would one do that? Because it seems extremely overwhelming, at least to me and to my ears.
2: The one thing that you um, need to avoid is to try to boil the ocean in the process. With the research that we've done, which uh, you're free to share, you could immediately begin to sort out which of these megatrends might have a, the most effect given the industry that you're in. Then imagine how those megatrends would have a material material impact over the next five to ten years, and at what level the impact will be? You know, will it will it be impacting the global order? Will it be uh, impacting societies and economies? Will it be in, in interrupting or disrupting the the businesses uh, within the markets that you're dealing, or or households and individuals? And and when you start to um, appreciate the impact of the megatrends that would have on Kind of all aspects of our lives, it becomes easier to think about the megatrends and what their effect might be on a given business.
1: So, I want to uh, leave our audience uh, with your thoughts on this one final question, which I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you can address. You've explained what future back strategic planning is, why looking at these megatrends are so important, <clears throat> but I want to get into the tactics. How would a family business? work with understanding these megatrends so that their strategic planning takes these almost inevitabilities into account and so that they catch the tsunami on the right side of it?
2: Well, I think the um, starting point today in in particular would be to understand that the magnitude of these eight megatrends, I believe, will be such that they have accelerated the demise of the post-World War II S-curve economy. And, and if you if you look at economic cycles, what you find is that most economic cycles run over a three to four generation period of time, you know, typically 70 to 100 years. And, and it's not as if uh, all of the business activities necessarily um, wane at the end of the 70 to 100 years, but usually the play has been had and there's another... S curve that overtakes it, driven oftentimes by by technology. You can look back and you think about, as an example, the the impact that the railroads had when they came in, or the impact that that the jet travel had on the railroads when jet travel evolved. Uh, you know, etc. Et and it isn't as if there aren't still railroads in the United States, but transportation logistics travel has changed materially since the heyday of the rail industry so th- this covid has kind of accelerated these mega trends if you look at technology as an example in in uh, the microsoft 2019 shareholders report where they were kind of estimating the adoption rates for new uh, microsoft products uh, one of which was teams the estimate in 2019 before covid hit what was that there would be a certain number of millions of users of Teams accounts video conferencing by 2029? Well, by May of 2020, two months after COVID, that number had been hit. So there are a number of factors that, that COVID has caused the acceleration. And as a result, that, that post World War II S curve, what was already beginning to level out as we came into 2018, 19, 20. It, but, it, but it was likely to have run its course out to 2030, 20, 2035, 20, or thereabouts. Not that the, the new economy drivers weren't beginning to take root because they were, but there wasn't as much momentum to accelerate some of those things. If you, if you get into synthetic biology, um, you know, the uh, RMA, uh, you know, vaccines. Uh, if, which is all synthetic biology. If you look at number of these other categories, you'll basically see how COVID has driven this new S curve. So I think the first starting point to answer your question would be to understand that we're now in the um, the next S curve, and the business models, the market factors, competition are going to be different than all of us have known in that old S curve economy so there's a new new S curve the this the second way to take them into account is to uh, you know use our report uh, do further research yourself to identify the mega trends that are likely to have uh, more of a impact and then take those into account relative to your future point planning
1: I think what I want to do is I would call you <laughs> and help me think all this through because this is It's a very dense topic, but I think, and it can feel very overwhelming, this concept of megatrends and incorporating them into your strategic planning. But honestly, I think you'd be a fool not to. Uh, And I think you'd actually be um, derelict for your family and your family's business if you didn't do it. So James, what do you think is the difference between strategic planning for corporations that have to meet quarterly earning targets and so forth versus... A family business that has more of a long-term
2: view? Well, for the the um the larger multi-generational family controlled businesses that have good strategy and great governance, including the parallel governance, by developing the patient capital, as there aren't any time constraints on how the board members or the management team members would necessarily need to think about the future, uh, or in which they need to put points on the board. When you look at so many of the private equity-backed businesses as an example, uh, what they're trying to do is to um, improve financial reporting results in a 3 to 5 year period of time so that they can turn around and sell or flip the the company to the next the next owner you know what you might do from a strategic planning standpoint or even a tactical planning standpoint short term to boost up uh, EBITDA uh, could be materially different if you really knew that you had capital to work with for a 10 or 15 or 20-year period of time. With the public companies, uh, in uh, in theory, with the ownership structure of the public companies, they could take a longer-term view, but, uh, but oftentimes you do have quarterly earnings pressure, and uh, all of the public companies are technically in a state of play uh, because they can be subject to tender offers, um, so on and so forth, which is not the case with family businesses if they're structured correctly and they're governed uh, correctly.
1: So would you consider family businesses having a competitive advantage?
2: Well, I think I think patient capital gives, gives them a, a competitive advantage because of how they can make decisions. The other, thing that, the other thing that gives them a competitive advantage is that to the extent that they're interested in growing through combining with other companies, other family-owned companies would be more inclined to combine with a business that's owned by another private family than they would be to um, sell out to a business that is owned uh, differently.
1: James, thank you. It has truly been a privilege and my honor to have you on here.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be with you. And and again, uh, if uh, there's any follow-up information, we'd be pleased to provide it.
0: Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast and hear more from family business leaders who have addressed issues of critical importance to family-owned business. For more information about the podcast, SMB Interim Management, Yate Advisors, or Robin Lechinger, visit us at FamilyBizLeadership.com. That's B-I-Z Biz. FamilyBizLeadership.com.